Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Hey, this is Kion Wolf. I'm here with Betsy Kaplan in your podcast feed saying thanks for tuning in, first of all. And please keep this podcast going by calling 1-800-584-2788 or by going to wnpr.org slash donate. That's the place where you become a member or you renew your membership. And most importantly, you keep us going. And we can't do this without you. Kion and I, along with the, the rest of our team, put on the Colin McEnroe Show every day of the week for you because we love to do this for you and we love the show as well. So give us a call, 1-800-584-2788 or go online at wnpr.org. Enjoy the show. I've always been fascinated by the story of Wilhelm Reich, who was regarded as one of Freud's most brilliant disciples. And then he either went off the rails or discovered something really important about sex. And who you ask will determine very much how you answer that question. The question will be explored on this show in several different ways. We originally did the show in 2016, but the documentary you'll hear us talking about, Love, Work, and Knowledge, The Life and Trials of Wilhelm Reich, uh, by filmmakers Glenn Orkin and Kevin Hinchy is now being shown in this area. You'll be able to see it at the Wadsworth Athenaeum, Sunday, February 17th at 2 p.m. So for now, uh, just to get you interested in the documentary, uh, listen to this story uh, of a man who either unlocked one of the big secrets of life or was so dangerous and so uncooperative that it was necessary to imprison him. Uh, His story ends very tragically, as you'll hear. Thank you for agreeing to be part of my experiment. It's very difficult to get research subjects in my field. Uh, I'm still not 100% clear about what this field is. Well, (laughs) you know, um, (laughs) I don't really like to say it. I think you have to. Okay. Well, well, um, I'm looking at what happens if people, you know, um, uh, if If people make sexy time. If people make sexy time. People do make sexy time. Right now, there are millions of people all over the world making sexy time. (laughs) They don't. That is crazy talk. (laughs) Why? Have you heard something? Uh, I don't have to hear something. I mean, how do you think babies are made? Oh, I know that. The woman has a shrimp cocktail and four glasses of Chardonnay. My mother explained the whole thing to me. She lived through it. Look, (laughs) you seem nice, but I think you're ill-equipped to conduct sex research. What's that supposed to mean? I have binoculars, a stopwatch, and a bucket of cold water. What else is there? Uh, everything. Maybe I should listen to this show about a famous researcher whose work spanned decades and created controversies. And now the man who made Norman Mailer stop touching himself... Colin McEnroe. I wouldn't say I did that. I got him to cut back quite a bit. We had some very serious conversations about that. Uh, and, and I do think I, I made an impact anyway. Uh, we're going to talk today about Wilhelm Reich. Wilhelm Reich is somebody that um, you know about if you've studied the history of, uh, of psychoanalysis, um, uh, the stories of the early disciples of Freud. He's also uh, this man who had this tremendous impact. He crossed paths with 
just about every major thinker of the 20th century, uh, from uh, Bronislaw Malinowski to Albert Einstein, uh, his work, or at least parts of his work, uh, attracted the excitement of people like J.D. Salinger, Saul Bellow, in fact, yes, Norman Mailer. Uh, musicians write songs about him. There's a Patti Smith song about him and his son. Uh, you'll hear later um, a Kate Bush song uh, about one of his uh, inventions. Um, he's somebody who's commemorated in all kinds of different ways, but he also was one of the most persecuted men, men of the 20th century. Uh, he is, uh, I don't know if he's unique, but he's unusual at least in having had uh, his uh, work, his books and his other work burned in Nazi Germany from which he fled. Uh, and then uh, after fleeing to America, later had his books and work burned in America. Uh, I'm not sure how many people can claim that dubious distinction. So uh, he also has a number of, of supporters, people who feel as though there are parts of his work that have been lost in the shuffle of controversy. Uh, and we have two of them here today. Uh, Kevin Hinchy is here. He's co-director of the Wilhelm Reich Infant Trust and operates the Wilhelm Reich Museum in Rangeland. Maine, up by those beautiful lakes. Uh, he's also a screenwriter who is currently working on a documentary uh, about Wilhelm Reich. Uh, also joining us, James Strick, a professor and chair of the Department of Science, Technology, and Society, uh, professor of Earth and Environment at Franklin and Marshall College. He's the author of Wilhelm Reich, Biologist, which is uh, published by Harvard University Press. Kevin Hinchy, I'm going to begin with you. When you try to explain to somebody, maybe somebody who walks in the door on a beautiful summer day up in uh, Rangeley uh, into your museum without much understanding of who this guy is, um, and they say, whose museum am I in right now? Uh, what do you say to them? Uh, well, uh, uh, some of them who come in probably have some sort of uh, uh, vague knowledge, uh, having read something locally coming in. But in answer to your question, I like to start really uh, at the end, pretty much the way you did just now. And explained that this was a uh, a psychoanalyst, a psychiatrist, a research physician, and a scientist whose books were banned and burned by order of federal court in America uh, in the 1950s. What was it in uh, Reich's publications, 10 hardcover books, 11 years of his uh, published research journals that allegedly merited this literature being uh, banned and burned. That always seems to be a, a wonderful way to pull people in because in the end, whether they're particularly, they end up being particularly interested in his life and work, the idea of a man's books being banned and burned in America uh, during his lifetime and three years after his death really arouses their curiosity and makes them a little more uh, receptive to the story. You know, James Strick, um, uh, regardless of whether a person buys into any of Reich's ideas or not, and we'll come to that, um, but whether you do or not, studying him is studying this incredible history of the fusion of the behavioral sciences and the medical sciences and the politics of Middle Europe in the 1930s and 1940s. He's racing all over uh, Middle and, and Northern Europe. He's uh, using ideas from Marxism to fuel some of his scientific uh, thinking. Uh, he's part of this revolution 
version of uh, sexual research that's going on in the 1930s. Uh, we've seen a little bit of that being uh, chronicled even now in, in popular culture. Uh, and certainly uh, Reich's shadow is hanging over this Showtime series, Masters of Sex. It's so much a series about the difficulties in the 1950s in America of doing sexual research, how much trouble you could get into no matter how scientific you tried to be. So it's all over the place there. And I guess one thing I was going to ask you, James Strick, is as you looked at all this, what what drew you to Reich? This is he's not an easy guy to sell to a canonical scientific audience. What made you want to write about him? Yeah, well, it's worth saying a little bit about my background and what my general research is about in order to make it clear. I'm a historian of science by training, uh, like about half of historians of science. I was originally a scientist, in my case, a microbiologist. And uh, when I retrained as a historian of science, the kind of stories that I was most interested in looking into were uh, ideas and experiments about the origin of life. So when I heard about a story of a a Freudian psychoanalyst who ended up in a physiology laboratory and sort of serendipitously stumbled into origin-of-life experiments, it piqued my curiosity for a dozen different reasons. I mean, one wanted to know right away, what's a Freudian psychoanalyst doing in a physiology laboratory? How does he possibly end up in the middle of -of origin-of-life experiments? And the more I looked into it and discovered the man's books were burned under official orders by an agency of the U.S. government, you really want to know what's in those books. What is this guy's research program all about? Um, I end my book, Wilhelm Reich Biologist, right at the point in August 1939 when Reich takes ship and comes to the United States, escaping Europe essentially just ahead of the outbreak of World War II. The eyewitness view that it gives you into how politics was so interfering with science in Europe in the 1920s and 30s. Then, too, the experiments that uh, I referred to where Reich found himself in Origin of Life uh, unexpectedly are the experiments that led him directly to a very unorthodox theory of how cancer cells develop. And the same experiments led him to discover uh, what he considered to be uh, a previously unknown form of radiation that on further investigation, he decided the evidence suggested was a specific biological energy that some biologists had hypothesized and been looking for for some years. So since both um, his theory of what he called orgone energy and his theory of the, the origin of cancer cells are intimately related to what eventually led to his confrontation with the United States government in the late 1940s and 1950s, it seemed to me like this story would be interesting for an even more important reason. Anybody who was ever interested in whether Reich, whether there was any substance to his science in contradistinction to the widespread narrative that once Reich went into the laboratory, nothing but pseudoscience resulted, would want to know about these experiments. Let me grab a call here. Uh, Here's Philip in Hamden with a question. Hi, Philip. Hi. Hi. I've done a little bit of reading about Reich, and and what I've been struck with is it seems that when I read him versus what's said, there's such a gross misunderstanding of his work. So I'm wondering if you could invite your guest to try to explain or give their opinions as to why they think Reich is so 
dramatically misunderstood. All right. It's sort of the $10 million question in some ways. And Kevin, uh, it, it's a question with a lot of long answers. But is, is there a short answer? Why was this guy demonized? As as James Strick is saying, some of the work that he was doing, certainly in that kind of interwar period, as he calls it, and, and uh, as he kind of departed psychoanalysis and, and began to go into the lab, was sort of at the level of pure research. But it, it freaked people out and pissed people off. Uh, but in general, that's the story of Reich. You know, wherever he goes, he's getting on people's nerves and he's getting demonized. So what's the reason? It could be conceptual differences because he was looking into more innovative therapeutic techniques. He was also a very gifted young clinician. There were professional animosities and jealousies and things like that. And also because he became heavily involved at a certain point, really from 1927 on, um, a very outspoken uh, individual involved in left-wing politics, speaking out against the rise of fascism in both uh, in both Austria and then in Germany, where he moves to. And so a lot of these animosities and distortions um, begin back then. They incubate. They persist. And in terms of what ultimately happens to him here in America, many of these distortions, many of these animosities precede him to America by uh, colleagues of his or former colleagues of his who have emigrated to America in the 1930s. So when Reich arrives here, and he arrives on uh, August 28th, four days before the outbreak of the war, there are already severe uh, animosities and distortions about him that are permeating the psychoanalytic, the psychiatric, and the medical professions here in America. Um, I, I'm just going to stay with you for a second here, uh, Kevin. And th- th- there are like four or five phases at minimum to Reich's career, to his research, to the things he was interested in. Uh, and we probably won't have time to cover them all today. But, you know, it, the story begins, and I'm of necessity going to oversimplify, mm-hmm. A, for the sake of time, and B, because I don't know the more nuanced version of this. But, you know, one of the ways in which he begins to confront uh, his his master, Sigmund Freud, with a slightly different version of things is, in fact, this, this notion uh, of sexual release, which he sees as a much bigger thing, uh, a thing that's... Uh, that that's holistic, that's kind of the the energistic and psychic version of what well, like a colon cleanse is today or something, that there's some way in which this is energy that can be harnessed to flush all kinds of things uh, out of a patient. And, and he's He's with this in, as Freud starts turning away from the libido and more towards ego psychiatry, and, and he's with it in a way that seems to rattle even Freud a little bit. Well, I think that's accurate. But what's important to remember is there was a period of time, and it went on for several decades, where Freud, the father of psychoanalysis, actually believed that the libido was not just an idea, but that it could possibly be a physical, biological energy that could be measure, uh, measured. And Reich hooked on to this, but he was not the only psychiatrist um, who, who was interested in this. Now, at a certain point, Reich sort of turned away from that idea of his. But based on his clinical uh, work with patients, and Reich was uh, always considered, even by people who eventually became his detractors, to be one of the most gifted psychiatric clinicians, based on his work with patients from all different kinds of backgrounds, private patients, patients of his from from the proletarian classes, 
he was convinced that the libido was, in fact, a real energy because that's how strong it was. He is really just taking a concept that Freud himself advocated for many years and and really sticking with it. And even Freud would say that neuroses are based on sexual repression. That's not Reich's idea. That's Freud's idea. But if you follow it to its logical conclusion, it has social implications because you have to consider what is causing these neuroses, what is causing the sexual repression. And when Reich becomes politically active, he's really coming out and saying we need to change certain social institutions. And that's where you really start to see the larger break happened between him and Freud because of the social implications of this. Right. He's also working on this whole uh, idea of, uh, uh, I love it, it's called sort of a, a body armor, or but he calls it character panzer. Uh, and, you know, this notion that we're, we're, we're holding tensions in our bodies. That And this is, and we'll talk about this a little bit in the third segment. This is certainly an idea that survived in, in lots of modifi- modified forms in, into a very, very acceptable way of thinking about things in the United States. There was a guy in the 1970s named Alexander Lowen who made a fortune writing books about this. They were bestseller books. They were just – they were boilerplate. They were boilerplate, right? They were just absolutely pure, purely based on, on Reich's ideas. And yes, he, he had been a student of Freud's. Right. Uh, of, of, of Reich's. Reich's. And yes. to, the, to this day, if you, you know, hang around some yoga studios, you're going to hear some ideas that sound an awful lot like character puns or this notion right. that, right. that, that our bodies begin to defend themselves uh, against psychic trauma and that we hold these uh, tensions in there. So not all of it's kind of uh, crazy talk and not at all. And, and so James Strick, so much of what he did seemed to be what other people were doing. He was a sexual researcher in the Weimar years, when a lot of people were sexual researchers. He was an avid Marxist at a time when a lot of people were avid Marxists. He was a guy who thought you could you, you could combine ideas of Marxist dialectical materialism with an approach to scientific research at a time when a lot of people were doing that. So once again, yeah, what, what gets him in trouble? Why? How come he's the guy getting chased out of everywhere, getting chased out of Norway, getting chased out of, you know, why is he in so much trouble compared to everybody else? It's interesting that you focus first, Colin, on the distinction that he made compared to many of the other psychoanalysts about how um, really gratifying sexual experience could, in fact, relieve people's neurotic symptoms. And I think this goes back to addressing the question, too, why is it so widespread that Reich is misunderstood? The very foundational approach conceptually that he took to this is nuanced, and a lot of people don't read Reich. They only read quick thumbnail sketches on the Internet, and they miss the important nuance that makes this thing hang together. Reich, when he first presented this idea to his psychoanalytic colleagues and said, uh, look, you know, the patients I have who are severely neurotic, when they actually experience genuine sexual gratification, they get better. Their symptoms diminish dramatically. And uh, his colleagues were, for the most part, pretty skeptical. They said, come on, I've got lots of patients who have sex all the time, and they're still severely neurotic. And that prompted Reich to ask his patients in much closer detail about their sex lives. And what he discovered was that the vast majority of his colleagues were just asking his, their patients, you know, do you have sex? Or how often do you have sex? And that, to them, was satisfactory data for passing judgment on these ideas. But when he asked his patients in much greater detail about their sex lives, he found that it, it was 
in, in a way, you know, we all instinctively understand this, right? It wasn't about quantity. And I think the single most common misunderstanding or misapprehension or misrepresentation of Reich is that he claimed that if you just had sex all the time, it would cure everything from neurosis to cancer. And Reich was, in fact, the person who discovered that it wasn't just about quantity. He uh, framed this in a concept that he called orgastic potency. He said, what I've really found here is that if the patient has uh, the internal capability to let go and really allow themselves a completely gratifying sexual experience, that's what leads to diminishment of neurotic symptoms. And he was the first one to notice that it was the patients who couldn't do that who frequently became hypersexualized because they couldn't get gratification and therefore were running around screwing all over the place. And for Reich, it was not just having sex. It was the ability to experience complete discharge of the damned-up energy that meant the energy was no longer there to fuel the neurotic symptoms. And um, that's what he called orgastic potency. If you really don't take this concept on board, I think, it'll be very hard for you to understand or take seriously most of what Reich did because this concept is central to everything that he did afterwards. He felt that if we can't take Freud's libido theory into the laboratory and show that you can really demonstrate that libido is actually a tangible, measurable force that we could study quantitatively, James Strick, I've got to go to a break here, and and I want to get us into that laboratory, uh, and we've already used up half the show, and there's so many things that we've got to talk about here. If you do enjoy this kind of show, I, I do feel as though we're one of the few places you would ever hear something like this. So when the nice people ask you to support the show, please do it now. We get more credit. All right, then. Come on, spin. Let's talk about sex, baby. Let's talk about you. I'm Betsy Kaplan here with Kyone Wolf, taking just a few seconds out of this podcast that you're listening to of The Colin McEnroe Show. Uh, You can't listen to it or you choose not to listen to it during the day and the evening, but you're going to be rewarded for that because we're not going to be speaking to you as long about asking you to to donate to the show. But we do need that support. We can't do this without you. So please give us a call, 1-800-584-2788, or go online at WNPR.org and keep this programming going. It's possible that while you're listening to this podcast, Betsy Kaplan is figuring out the next show. (laughs) So (laughs) Or not. Or not. Please take a break for once, Betsy Kaplan. But please show Betsy your support. Show us your support. This is the way that you send us a message that you want us to keep going. They do pay attention to those pledges for this show. And when you call 1-800-584-2788 or you go to wnpr.org slash donate, you can write in the little box what you think. And they do pay attention to that stuff. So please give us the rating that is your membership by yes. calling 1-800-584-2788, wnpr.org slash donate. And let's get back to the podcast. Thank you. All right. We're back. We're talking about uh, the legacy of Wilhelm Reich, the complicated legacy of Wilhelm Reich Reich, with two uh, uh, people who believe that he has been misunderstood over time. Kevin Hinchy is the co-director of the Wilhelm Reich Infant Trust and operates the Wilhelm Reich Museum in Rangeley, uh, Maine. It's uh, way, way up there uh, among some beautiful lakes. Uh, He's also a screenwriter currently working on a documentary uh, on Wilhelm Reich. Uh, And James Strick is with us, professor and chair of the Department of Science, Technology and Society 
professor uh, of Earth and Environment at Franklin and Marshall College. He's the author of Wilhelm Reich, Biologist. So, James Turk, I just want to come back to what you were saying before, because this is uh, the meat of your book, really, is this time in which Reich turns away, really, from the bones of psychoanalysis and, and gets into the bare bones of life. He really becomes interested uh, in, in maybe even trying to understand life at its cellular cellular level and, and what might even be a theory of the origin uh, of of life. And he winds up talking about something that he calls a bion. Now, this is something, obviously, that you've written a very long book about, and our time is much shorter. But can you give us kind of a thumbnail uh, of, uh, of what he's talking about? What is he talking about with the bion? Yeah, so uh, in some ways it is in the tradition of some other work that was going on in the 1920s and 30s called cell model experiments, where people were trying to imitate the properties of very, very simple cells by putting together different combinations of chemicals that would produce you know, microscopic structures that had some of the properties of cellular life, but not all, and trying by this approach to understand, well, what might a chemical origin of life have been like? But Reich was also pursuing a second track of experiments. Um, he was watching already um, organized matter, you know, dead grass or moss or dead animal tissue, disintegrate in broth under the microscope. And he found that in both cases, he saw very similar kinds of microscopic structures produced that had really similar properties. These are the things he called bions. They were very small, about the size of a bacterial cell. But they had properties like electrical charge um, that was characteristic of a living system, and they could, under certain circumstances, be grown in culture generation after generation. So once the preparation was made, you could transfer it to sterile culture media, and a culture of these exact same bions, a pure culture of just this one kind of microbe, would grow up in that sterile medium. And if you took a sample of that and transferred it again to another sterile medium, it would grow up again through many generations. And Reich began to think these things must be at least transitional stages between non-living and living matter if they had so many properties that were lifelike. Um, But by the time he starts to be able to grow them in culture through successive generations, he's asking himself, are these things alive? Have I stumbled here on processes by which life is created in nature out of non-living material? He's kind of going back and forth between those those two hypotheses. Um, But the bions are important, not just whether you take them seriously as experiments that had something to say about the origin of life based on where laboratory research was in the 1930s. They're also important because Reich thought when he saw a parallel process of uh, disintegration into bions in animal tissue, and then those bions reorganized themselves into protozoa that looked almost identical to cancer cells taken in a living state from cancer patients, he began to think that these bions were a lot more important than just about the bridge between life and non-life. 
we need to pause that here. We're just going to run out of time. And it would be nice to build kind of an immaculate set of bridges from one thing to another. But I I think that's going to be tough to do. Um, Kevin Hinchy, eventually, uh, he's trying to do these experiments in Norway. Europe is basically collapsing around him. Uh, He gets out pretty much on on metaphorically the last bus, uh, winds up in the United States. There's a lot of things to talk about there. But I mean, we're going to just have to kind of leapfrog ahead. The thing he becomes famous for next is, in fact, this orgone energy accumulator. So sometimes called the orgone box. And once again, Kevin, I'll have you in, in, a, yeah. in a thumbnail or a nutshell. Lay that one out for us. In early 1939, he finds in a particular bion culture, a specific bion culture, a radiation phenomenon. And it is after discovering this radiation phenomenon that he starts using Faraday cages to help determine, is this electricity? He uses other experiments. Is this radioactivity? You know, you know, what is this? And he determines that this is an energy in and of itself that is previously undiscovered, and he gives it the name of orgone energy. And when he comes to the United States, and it's just a few months after his discovery of this orgone energy in microscopic cultures in January and February of 1939, comes to America in, at the end of August, and war breaks out a few days later. He immediately sets up a laboratory in the house that he's renting in Forest Hills to continue what he calls orgone energy research. And these Faraday cages, which are metal enclosures, a mesh screen or solid screen, eventually, uh, based on his observations, will evolve with certain different layering into what uh, he would call orgone energy accumulators, which would isolate and hold in the radiation from these various cultures he's experimenting with. And then he also discovers later on in in the Rangeley Lakes area, about a year later in July 1940, he also discovers in the atmosphere. And so he discovers that these now orgone energy accumulators can also absorb and concentrate an atmospheric orgone energy. And, uh, and, And at the time, these are just small accumulators, about one cubic foot. Eventually... He will do experiments with cancer mice in these uh, small orgone accumulators. The results are rather promising. He eventually develops larger accumulators, large enough for a person to sit in. And in early 1941, he will embark on the first of his experimental cancer treatments with individuals with terminal cancer. So... This is one of the places he gets into trouble. So a lot of things are happening right now. We're talking about a period in the late 40s, early 50s. Uh, America was, on the one hand, incredibly distrustful uh, of outside influences, new ideas, anybody with a Marxist past. Uh, We're talking about what is sometimes referred to as the second Red Scare. That's going on. But there's also this incredible countercultural movement. So Reich winds up, uh, Kevin, with a profile in both places, right? He's, uh, you know, on the one hand, being excoriated by one journalist in particular, a woman named Mildred Brady, writing a series of articles uh, about him in, in uh, both the New Republic and Harper's, uh, that he's the uh, the leader of a new cult of sex and anarchy. He's a dangerous man. He's using these uh, devices. People don't know what they are. On the other hand, uh, he gradually gets a tremendous amount of traction that lasts for really decades with people like Norman Mailer, J.D. Salinger, Saul Bellow, Allen Ginsberg, Jack Kerouac, Dwight McDonald, William S. Burroughs. You can go all the way into the 70s and supposedly Sean Connery is still using 
building some version uh, of the Oregon Energy Accumulator. So both of these things are happening at once, but maybe we can talk about the first thing. He becomes an outlaw to a certain degree. I mean, these articles are written about him, uh, and um, the government gets very interested in a very negative way uh, in the work of Reich. You can't really separate the two threads that you've elaborated on there. And so, for example, this is where we start coming to the major distortions about the Oregon Energy Accumulator, which starts to be used by by people starting in, in 1941. And the, the two major distortions about this are, number one, that Reich was uh, promoting it as a cancer cure, uh, and he was doing nothing of the kind. I often say to people, I will wager you any amount of money at any time if you can find anything in Reich's publications where he claims he can cure cancer, whereas I could show you five or six statements where he can't. So that's the other one. In terms of all the names that you mentioned there, these writers and things like that, yes, they were admirers of Reich, but they, in fact, do a great disservice to, uh, to Reich because uh, individuals like them seem to misinterpret what the Oregon accumulator was about, and they are partially responsible. People like Burroughs and, 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 and Kerouac and, and, and even earlier people, Bellow, that this somehow was some sort of sexual device to enhance potency. Uh, that is not the case, and Reich never made those claims for it. So if it's not a sex box and it's not a cure cancer box, what is it? It is an experimental, scientific, and medical tool. He did get promising results by people using the Oregon accumulator. And Reich published all of these results in various case histories, which he compiled into a book in 1948 called The Cancer Biopathy. But it also started to get this reputation. This is some sort of it's – it's a cancer cure. It's a sex box. It's this, that. And Mildred Brady, uh, who you referenced, who was a freelance writer, is really one of the first – to put these kinds of distortions, to really uh, put them in a concise form in an article in, uh, uh, in May of 1947 in New Republic magazine, in which she essentially calls upon the authorities to really look into this man. And she is the one who first puts into print that the Oregon accumulator can be used to enhance orgastic potency. This article comes to the attention somehow of a physician uh, who is on a medical advisory board of the Federal Trade Commission. And um, when he reads that Reich is, in fact, renting out these orgone accumulators so patients can use them at home, this doctor at the Fe Federal Trade Commission passes this article on to someone at the Food and Drug Administration and basically says, this is something you might want to look into. Okay, I'm going to pause you right there because I just, uh, once again, we're, I'm fighting a clock here. So, um, James Strick, we live in an era where there's a, a very, very determined approach to, uh, to divide things up between science and pseudoscience. Reich is always put in the category of pseudoscience. But you got Harvard University Press uh, to, <laughs> to publish a book about Reich. How did you do that, given the fact that he died in prison for reasons that Kevin is already setting up. Uh, this is a guy who's been reviled in a lot of ways as a pseudoscientist. Most of the ideas we're talking about are not even remotely canonical. Let me just say one thing before taking on your question directly. The business about uh, Reich claiming the Oregon Energy Accumulator was a cancer cure, that's one of the most um, direct ways to find out whether anybody has ever actually read anything by Reich. 
because um, his book, The Cancer Biopathy, where he describes the experiments that he did on human cancer patients, every single one of the patients that came to him as a last-ditch patient who had been declared hopeless, etc., and was willing to try his experimental therapy because they had no other options left, all of them died, and Reich is very clear about that. Uh, the Food and Drug Administration, when they successfully prosecuted Reich, declared that he made those claims, but they declared it based on Brady's articles, not based on anything that Reich ever put into print himself. Uh, I've, got to, I've, I've got to jump in here because we are we are going to be out of time in the end of the uh, final segment here. So um, we're going to jump in here. We're going to take a break. We'll come back with more of this conversation. Says that's exactly what you get. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Our interns are Stephanie Reef and Ross Levin, whose final day is today. Thank you so much for your help, Ross. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Anna Freud. For show pages, news, and videos of the entire Here and Now staff packed into one orgone box, go to our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. And now, back to Colin. I All right, uh, Kevin Hinchy. That's a song called Cloudbusters by uh, Kate Bush. Uh, it's about yet another phase of Wilhelm Reich. As he's getting a, a little bit uh, towards the end of his life um, and, and some of the uh, recriminations against him uh, are piling up, he, he maybe gets a little bit more eccentric. And he does have this idea of the Cloudbuster, which some people describe as an inside-out uh, orgone. I, I should say musically, there's all ki- kinds of stuff. It's another way that he's celebrated in culture. Those of you who are uh, still lamenting the death of the famous bassist Lemmy should check out the Hawkwind sound, a song called uh, Orgone Accumulator. There's a Patti Smith song that's based on Peter Reich, uh, Wilhelm's son, and the two of them uh, uh, having a, a reunion and a UFO or something. But, but um, So Cloudbusters really refers to a thing that, that Reich uh, was trying to do. Explain that one for us. The, the, the Cloudbuster, um, it... It doesn't have anything to do with the orgone accumulator except that some of the energetic principles are the same. But this, these were experiments that Reich was doing starting in 1952, and they grew out of some atmospheric work he was doing. And he actually created a uh, instrument called a cloudbuster, which grounded in water could uh, affect the energy, the orgone energy potential in the atmosphere. As with all of his work, we have decades of Reich's notebooks and uh, in addition to his published work. And in fact, there are numerous documented cases of successful experiments where he was able to alter the, uh, the orgone energy potential in the atmosphere and bring about increased moisture and in some cases even rain. And, so, and, that, and that goes from around 1952 to 1956 and then Reich gets absorbed with all kinds of legal difficulties. So about four years. Yeah. So, 
There may be a little bit of a post hoc Proctor hoc question here about that, uh, but he did at least persuade some blueberry farmers uh, that he could yes. uh, uh, that he could literally make it rain, uh, as they say. And so, I interviewed one of them for the documentary film, uh, yeah. or or the son of one of them who was there when it happened. Yeah. So James Strick, at this point, if in fact Reich wasn't out on a limb with some of his other stuff, he's getting further out on a limb here. Some of it may be the product of the persecution that he's been going through. And he does get interested in UFOs. I mean, there seems to be a a certain point. Some people might say it starts way earlier than what we're talking about when Reich becomes his own worst enemy. I mean, just about everybody that you talk to who knows something about Reich is, is absolutely certain that he went crazy at some point. And when you ask them when it is, it's always the point at which he started to come up with ideas that they didn't like anymore. The psychoanalysts were sure that the time that when he went crazy was either when he became a Marxist or if they were left-wing psychoanalysts, some of them, when he went into a laboratory. It's hard to judge Reich's sanity at the remove that we're at. I think that one of the reasons why Harvard University Press, to go back to your earlier question, was interested in publishing the book that I was uh, suggesting was that it's a really exciting possibility since Reich's archives have opened to scholars since the fall of 2007. Why don't I go in there and look at his laboratory notebooks, at least on the set of microbiology experiments that I'm sure I'll understand the best because of my microbiology training, and why don't I try to form an opinion based on what's going on day-to-day in his laboratory, as recorded in those notebooks, about whether this really was pseudoscience or not. It's, it's not hard to tell if notebooks look fabricated. The notebooks that I found pretty much correspond day-by-day day with the sequence of development of the experiments that Reich later reported in his published reports. I mean, one of the main conclusions of my book is that one could disagree with Reich about how to interpret what he saw in his, his experiments— I think rational people could offer possibly alternative interpretations, especially based on new scientific ideas in biology. But we can dismiss this uh, narrative of pseudoscience and say at least that's a fruitless discussion. Now it would probably be a lot more fruitful discussion to focus on, well, what do these things mean? If it's clear from the laboratory notebooks that he saw what he says he saw— now let's have an interesting discussion about what it actually means. Uh, Kevin, one thing that uh, we didn't do today just because he wasn't available uh, was talk to Christopher Turner, who has written a biography of Reich that, that is less laudatory than anything that you are probably going to make in your film or or, or what James Strick uh, would write uh, in, in his book and, and, and making the argument that really Reich you know, was a pretty screwed up guy, uh, uh, that his daughter, uh, a psychoanalyst herself or a psychotherapist herself, said you know, that she thought he was sexually abused as a child, that to some of his disorders that other people like Ernest Jones, uh, you know, thought he was mentally ill, that that he had a turbulent li- turbulent life that caused him a lot of his problems, uh, had affairs with some of his patients and, and very turbulent marriages and relationships. So, I mean, how, how much of that's fair? The, a lot of the attacks on Reich are there was something wrong with this guy and there was something wrong, wrong with this guy from Jump Street. I think a lot of this is unfair. I've had uh, years ago considerable contact with Christopher Turner. I, I won't say too much. Um, I think he proceeded in very a lot of dishonest ways in talking to people and sort of disguising his agenda. And the fact that he would publish a book called Adventures in the Orgasmatron, 
I think pretty much tells you everything about his agenda. And so I think it's uh, I think it's always been unfair for people to really go through and cherry pick all these various things. I think you could probably do that with any number of people. You know, uh, so that's about all I, I want to say about that. All right. Well, that's good because that's all we have time for. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, obviously, good luck with the biography. And if people are traveling in northern Maine this summer, they might want to stop at the Wilhelm Reich Museum uh, in Rangeley, Maine, up there by the lakes. Thanks to everybody who helped out today. And certainly thanks to James Strick, author of Wilhelm Reich Biologist, and Kevin uh, Hinchy, uh, who's doing this, uh, bio, this uh, bio documentary uh, of Reich. And thanks to Betsy Kaplan for producing. And I think this is the Hawkwind tune, right? So you put it... Yeah. And then you push... Yep. And then you pull... Mm-hmm. And that's what it's all about? Yep. The hokey pokey has always been what it's all about. Is that what they call it? Mm, no. So that's our show, but now nice people are going to ask you to support not only this station, but this kind of program. And we're the only kind of program that does this program, so please donate now.